many of you had wives who uh, thought that Father's Day was next week? Anybody? Besides me, anybody? All right, grab a Bible, Mark chapter 3. Hey, a couple of things. Uh, number one, I want to say thank you for all of you who've been praying for us. Uh, the amount of uh, encouraging emails and hugs and texts uh, has been pretty amazing, as you know. Many of you know, uh, we've been wrestling with a call to be a senior pastor, and so we accepted uh, a position up at Evangelical Free Church of Fullerton uh, last week. And uh, we were going to tell that story the way we wanted to, and then it was all over social media, and so we got to send an email to everybody, which was awesome. Uh, but the thing that's been absolutely crazy has been how wonderful and generous and kind you've been, at least to my face. And um, so thank you for that. Uh, we, uh, we're not going to start the journey with them until September, so you're stuck with uh, me for a little while longer. And I need to say, this this crew of dancers that was right here was awesome, okay? This, I'm just saying, you didn't see it over here, but it was awesome. Now, Mark chapter 3, we're going to jump out of our series, uh, the, the You Are Here series. We're going to talk about a, a couple of other things, and then we'll pick up the series next week. Mark chapter 3, verse 1, Jesus gets into trouble yet again. Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them, now the them is some of the religious leadership, some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. Now, uh, I think Jeff McGuire talked about this a couple of weeks ago. There, there were 611 or 613 commandments in the Old Testament, depending on how you count them. And uh, one of the commands was, thou shalt not work on the Sabbath. You shall honor the Sabbath and keep it holy, was the idea. And, and, and the, the penalty for breaking the Sabbath, at least in those days, was death. And so the natural question was raised, okay, so what, what exactly constitutes working on the Sabbath? Now the ever-helpful rabbis... Uh, came up with 39 different categories of what it meant to work on the Sabbath. One of those was carrying a child out of a service, of course. Uh, but there were all sorts. And, and, and initially, I mean, the Sabbath was given as a gift to human beings, but it became such a burden because of these 39 different categories and all of the derivations of these categories. And one of the questions that the rabbis tried to help with is what happens if two of the 613 commandments contradict? For instance, if there's a command to, uh, to, uh, to help and protect life, but then there's a command to not work on the Sabbath, what happens, for instance, if your donkey falls into a hole? Or if someone needs healing. And so they came up with this sort of principle. That you were allowed to heal on the Sabbath if it was a life-threatening issue. But if it was not, then wait until Sabbath is over to do any healing. So does a man having a shriveled hand count as life-threatening? You know, it seems like there are people in this room besides me. It seems that way. <laughs> So, does it, shriveled hand, life-threatening? No. So, Jesus has a bit of a reputation. The reputation isn't that he does not honor the Old Testament. He does that. 
but he does not honor all of the ridiculous oral law that had grown up around it. So he sees a man with a shriveled hand. The religious leaders are there seeing if he will heal somebody, which is considered working on the Sabbath because the the issue was not life-threatening. So Jesus, meek and mild Jesus, Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Right? So there are times Jesus is looking for a fight. This is one of those. And then Jesus asked the religious leaders, hey, let's get out of the 39 categories of work. Let's boil down Sabbath keeping to like one simple question. Which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? <laughs> to save life or to kill? Right? Let's just, let's just cut the 39 categories and let's just boil it down. Notice the religious leaders, they remained silent. Jesus looked around at them in, what's your Bible say? Anger. Now, one of the fascinating things growing up in the church was that Jesus very often was presented to me as somebody who had like a lamb around his shoulders and who dressed in sort of like silk scarves and he was very gentle and very nice. And certainly that's true of Jesus except the silk scarves part. But there were parts of Jesus' ministry where he got really angry. And, and the word here for anger, not that you're particularly interested. There are t- two primary Greek words. One is thumos and one is orge. Orge is obviously where we get the word ogre. It's the idea that there is a, d- a disposition against something. Whereas thumos or thermal is the idea of, of something that burns quickly, it's irrational, it's off the handle, it comes and it goes. Orge is kind of a settled antagonism towards something. It's, it's, it's mental anger, not just emotional anger. And so Jesus got angry. Now what's fascinating is to notice what Jesus get, gets angry at. Go if you would to Mark chapter 10. What does Jesus get angry at? That's just a really interesting study. Because he doesn't get angry at the things that you would typically think a Messiah should get angry at. Verse 13, Mark chapter 10. People were bringing little children to Jesus. Now, that sounds so adorable to us. It's like a precious moment figurine. You know, I mean, just little kids back in the day were worthless. Right, The mortality rate was ridiculously high. And until the kids could actually help run your household, they were just a drain on your resources. So they were, they were, they were only viewed as potential adults. <laughs> there was no like, inherent value in being a kid. And so the disciples naturally rebuked the people that were bringing little kids to Jesus. Verse 14. When Jesus saw this, He was indignant he it's a strong moral offense in Jesus's eyes to prevent the little kids from coming to him flip over to chapter 11 this is his very famous episode mark chapter 11 verse 15 on reaching jerusalem Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling. Now, how did he drive them out? He formed a whip. And he starts cracking the whip. 
and driving the animals out of the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those who were selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a hideout for robbers? What's so interesting is when you look at the anger of Jesus, Jesus is angry any time religiousness gets in the way of compassion. Any time that religiousness kind of misses the point of religiousness. I mean, so, so naturally, when the Sabbath law is used to justify not helping a man with a shriveled hand, he's angry. Or, or when children, because they're reviewed as just of little worth, were restricted from coming to Jesus, he's indignant. Or when the temple his father established has now become a racket used to oppress the poor. He overturns tables. Jesus gets angry at the religious folks, not at the sinners. I mean, he meets a woman who has five husbands. Not has, had. And she's living with a sixth guy. And he acknowledges that, but what's he want to do? I want to talk to you about living water. But you get him around a group of Pharisees, Woe to you, blind guides, children of snakes, hypocrites. I mean, it's just fascinating how often Jesus got mad at the very people you'd think the Messiah would delight in. And in that way, he was much like his father. Go if you went to the book of Isaiah. Oh, we're going to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 1. God... <laughs> God got angry. It doesn't surprise us in the Old Testament because that's kind of his reputation, right? In the Old Testament, he's just kind of angry and then Jesus comes and now he's happy. <laughs> but he and Jesus have a lot, little more in common than that. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 11. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? Well, they're the sacrifices, God, that you commanded, first of all. Look at what he says. I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Wow. Is he angry? Seems that way. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals, I hate with all my being. They become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I'm not listening. Your hands are full of blood. What, is, what has got God so angry? Verse 17, learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Really, God, that's what's got you bent out of shape. Is that evidently when you have the worship that's directed towards God, but love is not directed to your neighbor, God really isn't interested in your worship. I mean, isn't this what John says? 
In 1 John, he says, if anyone claims to love God but hates his brother, he's a liar and the truth of God's not in him. So Jesus is a lot like his father. Go to Isaiah 58. Another one. (laughs) So there were times in Old Testament Israel that there were days that were set apart uh, for fasting. You know what fasting is, right? Right? I I did it once. And it was the longest two hours of my life. And, uh, no. and, and I mean, so fasting, those days you would, you would go from sundown to sundown. You would not eat for the purposes of setting yourself apart for worship. Now notice, notice God's take on this. Verse uh, 2 of Isaiah 58. Day after day, they, Israel, seek me out. They, Israel, seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? This is God's response. But on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is God really impressed with external shows of religiousness? Evidently not. Is this the fast kind of fast I've chosen? Only a day for you to humble yourselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed or for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast that's acceptable to the Lord? In other words, is it just an outward only sort of thing? No, God says. Is this not the fast kind of fasting I've chosen? To loose the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry, and to provide that poor wanderer with shelter, when you see the naked to clothe them and not turn away from your own flesh and blood? So their fasting was totally divorced from how they treated each other, and God says, I cannot stand it. When love of God and love of neighbor are kept separate, God isn't interested in just external acts of piety. Evidently, one of the things that really gets him cranked up is how people of God treat other people. Go over to the book of Amos, just a couple more, just wonderful, very positive examples. I want you to see that Jesus was just like his father. Anytime religion was an excuse to disobey the commands in the heart of God, they got ticked. Amos chapter 5. <laughs> oh my goodness. God, God's not subtle. At least, not always. Verse 21. I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings, you still looking for Amos? (laughs) Just just stay open somewhere and then read on the screen. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Even though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. And then this line, away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness, like a never-failing stream. What is God, 
God so crazed and angry. Go to Amos 8. This is what he says about his people. Verse 4, Hear this, you who trample the needy and do away with the poor of the land, saying, When will the new moon be over so that we can sell grain? And when will the Sabbath be ended so that we can market wheat? In other words, we're not really interested in your festivals, God. We're really interested in making money. Skimping on the measure, boosting the price, and cheating with dishonest scales. Buying the poor with silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Selling even dirt with the wheat. I mean, isn't it interesting? When you look at the things that God gets upset about, and then you look at the things that I get upset about, does that list match? No. Let me answer that for you. No. I mean, whenever I read stuff like this, it always strikes me. I spend my time getting angry at things that don't matter. God spends His time getting mad at things that do. And anger is such an interesting thing, isn't it? I mean, not only is it universal, but it's incredible fuel. Right? We do really crazy things. You can be exhausted, and then someone makes you mad, and you have all the energy in the world. Right? Oh, really? It's just me? Is that a silence of acknowledgement, or is that a silence of, oh, it's only you? I mean, my wife will tell you, I, I, several years ago, we were pulling out, we were, we were about ready to, we were at a stoplight, we were about ready to go forward out of a driveway, at a stoplight in front of it. Light turns green, my wife pauses. Now normally, my wife's a gunner, okay? My wife, especially you get her in her minivan, she drives angry. I'm not, I'm not lying right now. But for some reason, she paused in that moment, and, and literally, I started to turn to her and ask her, why aren't we going? And this, this huge truck comes barreling through the intersection, runs the red light, would have, would have killed us. They, would have, they were going 40, 50 miles an hour. I mean, just not even braking. I mean, straight through as if the light were green. And instead of, in that moment, saying, Lord, I can't believe you just saved our lives. I hopped out of the van. <laughs> now, and I had shorts on that were too big, believe it or not. And I start running down Harbor Boulevard in my flip-flops with the speed of a large tortoise, <laughs> holding my pants up, trying to catch up to the truck that had stopped a block down the road. Now, at some point, it dawns on me that I don't have a plan. And I think to myself, what am I going to do if I catch the truck? I mean, what am I going to do? What if it's a girl? I mean, I mean, it just all these scenarios go through my head, and so I just stop, pull my shorts up, and start walking back. And... and just, he picks me up. Just like, what, what were you going to do there? What was going on? Have you ever had one of those moments where like the, it's like nuclear fuel and it just overrides everything? Have you ever had one of those moments? I mean, my wife and I rarely, rarely argue, believe it or not. I just say yes to whatever she says. 
Every now and again, I question her judgment. And, and there was one particular instance where uh, volume was increasing with every verbal repartee. You know what I'm saying? And, 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 and so volume's increasing, volume's increasing. Uh, because we weren't in the same room, we decided to argue like several rooms away from each other. And, and, and all of a sudden, we have a little boy named Seth who's three and a half years old, who can't yet, he's working on talking, but we start hearing him imitating us in the next room. <laughs> Thanks, Lord. Thank you. See, when you look at the things that made God angry, and you look at the things that make us angry, we are people that get angry over things that are of such trivial consequence. My food wasn't prepared right. Had to send it back. My server didn't refill my coffee quick enough. Your coffee. I hate coffee. I hate people who hate, or I hate people who love coffee. I hate coffee breath and coffee cake and coffee ice cream. But that's a different. Away with the noise of your coffee. Just teasing. <laughs> I mean, but aren't we, like someone takes our, our parking space, someone cuts us off in traffic. I mean, doesn't, I mean, it just, our anger just takes over and it fuels the most ridiculous sorts of behavior. But notice what Jesus' anger led him to do. Go back to Mark, chapter 3. What did Jesus' anger lead him to do. Verse 5. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. He said to the man with the shriveled hand, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. So let me get this straight. Jesus' anger leads to healing. My anger leads to destruction. Jesus' anger leads to restoration. My anger leads to division and fracture and hurt. Maybe the problem isn't that we're angry. Maybe the problem is that we're not angry at the right things. Maybe we spend all of our anger and passion and thumos at such trivial things that we don't have any for the things that really matter. What did Jesus' anger lead him to do? Stretch out your hand and led to healing. Go if you would to the book of Galatians. Paul got angry. Galatians chapter 5. Paul got angry. Paul... So there were people who, as non-Jewish people, were beginning to accept Jesus. The, some of the Jewish people, right? They didn't, Christianity wasn't Christianity back then. Jesus was the fulfillment of Judaism. That's what, that's what they believed. And so they thought, listen, if you're going to follow Jesus, you have to be Jewish to follow Jesus. And central to being Jewish was being circumcised. And all the men said... Happy Father's Day. 
But back then, if you were Jewish, you got circumcised when you were eight days old. If you were an adult coming to faith in Jesus and you're 30, it's a little different issue. Can we? Amen. Now, Paul is writing to a church or a series of churches who've been infected by the people who are arguing you have to be Jewish before you can follow Jesus. And he is pretty ticked off. Galatians chapter 5, verse 2. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare every man who lets himself be circumcised that he's obligated to obey the whole law. If you're going to play the law game, you've got to be perfect at it. Verse 7. You were running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? Jump down to verse 12. As for these agitators, these false teachers, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. You get that? Don't just take a little. Are you... you you're getting a train of thought here, kids? This is in your Bible, so I don't... Send your emails to K. Zimmerman at Mariner's Church. Is Paul angry? Yes. But what does Paul's anger lead him to? Notice what he says in verse 13. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be what? Free! Paul's anger at this false teaching led him in every synagogue he came across, every marketplace he could find himself in, every council or ruling leadership, every single place he would come and announce the gospel of freedom at great cost to himself of beatings and being shipwrecked and being naked and beaten and starving and hungry. He talks about this all over the place. But his passion was fueled by the promise of freedom. From this Jesus. That you didn't have to become Jewish first. By grace. Through faith. In Jesus. Was all that was required. See, my anger makes my world smaller. Paul's anger made his world bigger. One of my favorite teachers speaking about this subject said, we're people who go around looking for a fight because we're already not in one. Right? We're just, we have all this thermal nuclear energy sitting in us, but it just gets so easily provoked and offended that we miss out on the heart of God towards what really matters to Him. I mean, when you think of Isaiah and when you think of Amos, Think of this. The United States constitutes 6% of the world's population, but we consume 46% of its resources. Do we care? 1.2 billion people live on 23 cents a day. 1 billion people don't have clean drinking water. 800 million people will not eat today. Americans spend more annually on trash bags than nearly half the world does on all of its goods. Half the world on all of its goods. What Americans spend for ice cream in a year would provide education, water, and sanitation for the world's poor. There are 27 to 30 million slaves 
in this world, more than at any time in human history. And we're ticked because my service at the restaurant wasn't fast enough. You think maybe we're the people, if Jesus were here, he'd be angry at? You think Isaiah would be writing to us? Hey, oh, love your worship songs. So glad you guys take 80 minutes out of your weeks together. But if it's divorced from how you live everywhere else, I'd rather you not. Away with the noise of your songs. And I've tasted the good anger. I mean, Paul even says, in your anger, do not sin. So it's possible, evidently. I remember I was a youth pastor in Ohio. And uh, Bill Mauer, Ma, Mayer, Mauer, Mar, you know who this is? Like this very famous like, non-liker of Christianity. Mar, is that how you say it? Mar. Bill M., he, there was a talk show on television where he would invite Christians on and he would just like castigate them publicly. And, and this particular episode, a very nice, sincere person was on there, but he kept saying, you know, the Gospels are forgeries. They were written late. They weren't written by the people it said. Jesus never rose from the dead, blah, 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 blah. And this person just didn't have anything to say. And I remember, I remember exactly, I got so angry because I knew there were answers to everything he was saying. And that anger actually led me to go to graduate school in philosophy. Because I wanted to be the kind of person who, if I were ever in that situation, could be able to say, you're wrong. Do you ever get angry at the Christian spokespeople who supposedly speak for Jesus, who sound nothing like him after natural disasters? See, I get angry at that. Not at them, but at the way they represent Jesus. And I just want to be the kind of person who does the hard work in private so that if I'm ever in public and somebody shoves a microphone at me, I'd represent Jesus well. I mean, we never wanted to be particularly sensitive to what it was like to be parents of a special needs kid. But now that we are, do we get angry when 92% of these little guys are aborted? Do we get angry when they're mocked and made fun of? Do we get angry? Does it cause us to be graciously antagonistic in showing him off and demanding that people recognize he deserves to be here and we'd be impoverished without him? See, maybe the question isn't, God what, what are you calling me to do? What do I love? Maybe a question that you ought to ask is, God, what makes me, in the best sense of the word, mad? When I see it, I just something provokes in me. I can't let that happen. Or are we the kind of people that just spend our anger on the most minute and trivial and inconsequential of things? See, this convicts me. Because the goal is to have the heart of Christ. So I want to rejoice at what he rejoiced over. I want to be happy at the things that made him happy. I want, to gr- I want to grieve the things that he grieved. And I want to be angry at the things that made him angry. But most of all, I want my anger to bring about 
good the way that his did. Because there is thermonuclear nuclear fuel that sits inside of us that if it's channeled and submitted to the Lordship of God can be used for such good in the world. But for many of us, we're just upset they didn't get our order right. So would you do this? Would you close your eyes for a moment? And I don't know if this hits you at all, (laughs) but perhaps there are some things in your spirit, some things that are simply not worthy of your anger. Would you confess those things this morning? Can we just do a bit of repentance before our Lord God, forgive me for all the trivial, dumb things? And there's no condemnation, but would you bring those things before Him and ask for grace? And now would you ask Jesus, and this sounds odd, but would you ask him what you should be mad at? How could God use that anger to bring about good and healing and blessing? and restoration. And so, Holy Father, Um, we just bring before you our petty and selfish selves. There's nothing hidden from you. You know this anyway, but God, it comes to our attention this morning how ridiculous some of the stuff is that irritates us, that causes us to get angry, how irrational our anger is, how misplaced it is, and the fact that it does nothing good. Nothing good comes of it. And so Lord, as Paul says, we put off that anger and that rage and that malice. But Lord, there seems to be a holy anger, an anger that brings about healing, an anger that brings about justice, an anger that brings about compassion and restoration, and we want in on that. And so Lord, would you wake us up and would you provoke us to fight for what needs fighting for? to give voice to those who are voiceless and to stand against so many of the lies that are just assumed by our world.
And Lord Jesus, we need your grace to be the kind of people who are trustworthy. And all God's children said, Amen. Amen. Now,